Friends, it's a, a delight for me to be with you this morning at the end of this big Reformation year, as many churches around the world have celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Indeed, it's next week, the 31st of October, that marks exactly 500 years since Luther made his great protest. On that day, the 31st of October, Luther nailed 95 theses, which just means 95 sentences. It wasn't a series of 95 books that he nailed to the church. He nailed 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in central Germany. Now, an academic in the Middle Ages would do this standardly. You nailed something to a public place so that your students in passing got to read their tutorial material or their seminar material. This was not anything surprising. They didn't have Moodle. They didn't have photocopiers. They didn't have wealthy libraries. So students would gather in public places and read and talk. But Luther is doing this on the 31st of October, which we know, or perhaps some of us, as Halloween. But in the medieval world, this was the evening before All Saints' Day, the 1st of November, which itself is the day before the 2nd of November, you could probably work that out, which is All Souls' Day, All Saints' Day, then All Souls' Day. These are the great moments in the medieval church when on All Saints' Day, you acknowledge your prayers going through the saints to God. And on All Souls' Day, the particular day when you'd pray that those souls who died, who were not yet in heaven, might more quickly pass through the flames of purgatory. So Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church on the 31st of October is something that he's doing for his students, giving them toot reading, but he's also rattling the cage. He's asking very profound questions about the theology and the spirituality of the medieval church. He's asking questions about grace and the church. He's asking questions, what is grace and what is the church for? The two substantial questions that those 95 theses address. Now, should we spend any time thinking about a medieval German monk turned academic, Martin Luther? It is 500 years ago and a lot of water has passed under the bridge. But I think we need his protest today. Let me give you some illustrations. The church in Australian society, you'd know as well as me, is seen these days as a toxic force. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you'd asked the person on the Burke Street tram what they thought of the church, they might have thought, oh, Christians are holier than thou. They, 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 they feel like they're superior to everyone else. Perhaps not a glowing report, but nonetheless a, a sense that Christians had some moral capital to contribute to society. But now if you ask that same person in the Burke Street tram, I think you'd find them saying, no, Christians are toxic, they damage stuff, they're dangerous, we're better off without them. The church 
in Australian society is at a particular low point, not unlike the church in Martin Luther's medieval time. Also, uh, church numbers in Melbourne are declining rapidly. Not that Anglicans represent all of the church, but from an Anglican perspective in Melbourne, there's only 16,000 of us who go to church on Sundays, perhaps 17,000 on a good day. 16,000 Anglicans in a city of 4 million. It's chronic. And I think uh, I know most of those 17,000 actually. Um, (laughs) They mainly go to three or four churches. And not only that, we face extraordinary biblical illiteracy. No wonder Melbourne Uni runs a course on Christian imagery and Christian theology so that their English students can understand references in Shakespeare or references in other classic novels which assume a Christian worldview. One woman from La Trobe Uni came up to me some years ago and she said, Reese, I've got a deep question for you. I said, well, you can ask a deep question. I can't promise to give you a deep answer. And she said, this is it. She said, what's the difference between an apostle and an epistle? I said, well, an apostle is the guy who writes the letter and the epistle is the letter he writes. She goes, I never knew that. Thank you. Now, in my books, it's not a deep question. It's a dictionary question. But for her, this was a Christian woman, a tertiary student. This was for her something deep. We've done a shocking job in training up the next generation to understand the scriptures and understand the Christian hope. I think we need to study and to learn about people like Martin Luther because our church is in as parlous a position as his was at the beginning of the 16th century. There are three things this morning I want you to know about the Reformation, three ways in which we can take away some helpful lessons in our service. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we read these words. I've just realised Mark's in the New Testament, so I'm turning there now. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. But if you uh, were in church in those days, this is the way you would have heard it read. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, in Latin of course, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, do penance and believe the gospel. For in the Latin version that was read in your church, if you had any Latin, the word repent was expressed in two words, do and penance. So... In Luther's medieval world, you believed you were obeying Jesus by going to the priest midweek, confessing your sins and receiving from him some advice about what you should do to work off 
the penalty of your sins, whether it's to say some Hail Marys or whether it's to say the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, a number of times. You assumed that the centre of your Christian experience was not going to church on Sundays, but going to the priest midweek and doing penance. After all, Jesus in Mark 1.15 says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, do penance and believe the gospel. He's saying nowhere, here, go to church or take the mass. In fact, what you could do in going to church and doing penance before the priest is actually acknowledge that there might be some other very, very good Christians who might cover for you before the Lord. Church had become a place where you exchanged merits. It was a stock exchange for really good Christians applying some of their extra goodness to you as someone who was not extra good, perhaps particularly bad. The idea of penance, whereby you have, after a confession, received certain instructions to do things to make good your shortfall, led to a system whereby the church was seen as a place where merits were exchanged. Good people gave some of their merits to people who weren't so good. And in fact, if you were particularly good, you could have your, some of your merits applied to relatives, friends who were in purgatory, who could, through your merits, pass through the flames of purgatory more quickly. And if you bought someone else's good deeds, called an indulgence, you could then apply the merits of that purchase to someone else's soul. This was a system of spirituality which involved paying a price, seeing a priest, escaping purgatory, all through the merits or the power of the Pope. Now, of course, there were other theological factors beyond Mark 1.15 which fed into this. But ultimately, this is what people saw as the center of their spiritual lives. You did not go straight to God when you sinned and asked for forgiveness. There was a whole system of exchanges that the church has set up. So far away from Psalm 51, which we read this morning, where David, after committing uh, adultery with Bathsheba and killing Bathsheba's husband, says, against you and you alone have I sinned. In Psalm 51, David does not go to the priest. David goes straight to the Lord. David does his business with the Lord. And then by the end of Psalm 51 is so assured, so confident of the gift he's received from the Lord that he can make a commitment to teach other sinners God's ways. This was a system in the late medieval world in which Christ felt far away and in which the church's chief responsibility was not to teach grace but to become a clearinghouse, a stock exchange for trading merits. This was a very low point in the life of the church. 
No wonder Luther comes along and teaches a radical new thought which burned up the world, where he could argue that grace is a gift, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, not a substance that can be traded through the powerful mechanisms of the papal church. In fact, Luther, in reading Romans chapter 1, which we've also heard read this morning, came to this extraordinary conclusion. After struggling with the text, after reading it, teaching it, debating it, he realised that when Paul says that uh, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, that the word righteousness does not mean God is right to judge. It's not that God is righteous and therefore we're doomed. When Paul in Romans 1.17 says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, he means that the righteousness which belongs to God, he gives to us as a gift. That the phrase righteousness of God does not equal God's justice, but equals our forgiveness, our inclusion, our adoption, our salvation. And when Luther discovered that that's what Romans 1.17 is about, he said he felt like he'd entered through the gates of paradise. That righteousness is a gift, not a demand. That righteousness is the gift of Jesus Christ and you get all of him now. And so can be assured that you are safe with him forever. Friends, do you know assurance of sins forgiven? Because if we don't know that basic lesson, we're going to find it very hard to minister in post-Christian Australia. Do you know that beautiful confidence that you are safe with the Lord forever? And your safety begins when you start the Christian walk, not just after you pass through the flames of purgatory. Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation teach us the importance of assurance. That the church is here, not as a stock exchange for trading merits, but as that institution which teaches and preaches grace. It's a wonderful achievement and for us a reminder. Secondly, when Luther read Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe the gospel. He realized that God has a plan for the world because in this verse, the, there's a certain time that's been reached. The time is fulfilled. And now that that time, that moment in the timeline has arrived, God sent his son. The, king, the kingdom of God's at hand. The king of the kingdom has come. That God 
has a purpose and a program and a plan and therefore the church should see itself as a pilgrim church or perhaps slightly differently, that the church should define itself around God's plans, not around the Pope in Rome. This was a great breakthrough for Luther, that the centre of the church is not the Pope, but Christ and his kingdom. If you will allow me a technical word, he saw the church eschatologically, the church has a purpose beyond the rule and the reign of the vicar of Christ in Rome. In the medieval world, it was assumed that history had stopped. That when Western Europe became Christian with the conversion of the empire under the emperor Constantine, that history had reached its climax, that history had stopped, that history had The church was perfect because now all the world was Christian. That was the assumption. There was no change necessary. There was no reform needed if you've reached the climax. But Luther says that's not the case. God has a timetable and Christ Jesus is the focal point. In fact... This is the reason why Luther describes the Pope as the Antichrist who put himself at the centre of the church and that was, in Luther's mind, a great error. Yes, the church has the job of teaching grace and modelling grace and seeing itself as a medium of grace but the church doesn't thereby assume it's reached the goal. It needs to be continually reformed. It needs to think again and again, day by day, year by year, at how the scriptures ask the church to organise its life and to offer the gift of grace. Luther was keen to see the church underneath the authority of the scriptures, not underneath the authority of the Pope. Now, it got him into trouble, of course. He had to appear before the Pope, though he refused. Instead, he appeared before the German emperor, perhaps the most important man on the planet in Luther's day because the German emperor was also the king of Spain and the king of Spain possessed most of South America. So to appear before the German emperor, as Luther had to do, was to confront the most important person on the planet, conceivably. And the emperor asked him to change his mind about the views he'd preached and lectured on. When Luther says, of course, those famous words, here I stand, I can do nothing else, God help me, amen. He took his stand on the authority of the scriptures, though it cost him everything. Friends, my second question to you is, do you pray for the reform of the church in Melbourne? I don't mind if you pray for the reform of the church elsewhere too, but at least start local, start closer to home. Because... This is one of the big lessons that we take away from 
the rattling of the cage in the 16th century, that the church needed to be reformed, and we need to do that massively today. New social conditions mean we need to think in new ways about who we are in this society, in this culture. And reform in this place will probably look different from reform in that city or that territory or that country as well. Now, we do have some good things to report. 15, 20 years ago, if I turned up at the Melbourne Anglican Synod and national our, our annual parliament the word evangelism or mission was never used we've just come off our synod this week and the word mission was used in every second sentence so I think that's a sign of progress it might be that different people think of the word mission in different ways that might be true but we are making progress and we need you please to pray for our reform or any denomination as we learn to confront the new order of things in the post-Christian West. And thirdly, mission. If you turned up to church in Luther's day, everything was in Latin. The Bible reading, the prayers, the Mass... There probably wasn't normally a sermon. There might have been from time to time. And that was probably in Latin as well. Not much help to you if you were a farmer or a chandler or a butcher. Uh, Though, actually, that's what the church wanted you to feel. Because in the late medieval world, the church was the clergy. The lay people were not regarded as members you were observers of the church the church happened up here you were watching the church but you were not participants in the church and to remind you not only were the service in latin but you were given just bread and not wine when you took communion the priests and the monks took both bread and wine because they were the holy ones But everyone else, to remind you of your inferior status, took just bread. So it wasn't just that the service was in Latin and they hadn't got round to creating a German Bible yet or an English Bible. There was a deliberate theological idea supporting it. That if the church is meant to be holy, right, then the way you safeguard the church's holiness is to keep people out who would likely contaminate it. Now, we know, of course, in these days that it's often the clergy or the priests who contaminate the church. But it certainly was not assumed in Luther's time. No wonder, then, when Luther gets to look at the original text of Mark 1.15 he realises that it should be translated, the time's fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. From your heart, turn around. From your heart, go in a new direction. So Luther not only translated the Bible into German, but he put church services and prayers in the church services in German as well. This was radical and it led to people burning down buildings. So 
dangerous did it appear to reject the medieval way of doing things and start something new? In fact, if you asked Martin Luther what his mission was, he'd say, not to send someone to Brazil or to China. He didn't know much about Brazil or didn't know much about China. They didn't think in terms of world overseas mission. He saw his mission as explaining the gospel in the language of the people. His mission was to make the gospel available to the people who were already in church by giving them services and sermons in a language they could understand. His missiology was connected to his understanding of vernacular local language teaching. He was a great missionary, though he never left Saxony. And of course, John Calvin did the same for French, and William Tyndale and others did the same for English. This was a great period of mission through Bible translation. Well, we need to persevere in explaining the Christian message in ways that people understand. Now, of course, we have an abundance of English translations of the Bible, and I take it that most of your church service here at Mary Creek is in English week by week. Though I actually do think as a justice issue, we've got way too many Bibles in English. Why we keep translating the Bible to English when there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people groups around the world that have no Bible in their own language uh, beats me. But that aside, we need to learn again how to communicate the precious good news of Jesus Christ in ways that those we rub up against at work, at school, in classes and on the tram actually reaches its destination. The heart of those, our friends and family, who do not yet know the Lord Jesus. We need to count the cost in bearing witness. We need to think hard about how we as Christians communicate and making sure that our communication reaches the mark. Our oh, friends, we need to learn about the Protestant Reformation, not just the Protestant Reformation, we need to think again and again about lessons we can draw from church history. We need confidence, we need assurance that if we're to reach a nation that sees the Christian message as toxic, we can't do without that bedrock knowledge that we are right with God, no matter what anyone else thinks of us. And to deal with our declining numbers, we need the kind of focus, the searing focus on Jesus Christ that Luther rediscovered and that we need to preach. The way to change the nation or to grow our churches is not through some methodological trick, some latest fandangled theory that comes out of the States. We need a clear and confident focus on Jesus Christ. 
And of course, the only way we can deal with the biblical ignorance or biblical illiteracy in our land is to make sure that we are teaching and preaching in a language that people understand and making sure that our own personal witness and public proclamation is as clear and as determined and as uh, focused as it can be. We might well, in this, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, thank God that though Luther, sinner as he was, stared down the authorities of his day and introduced a new kind of way of thinking about grace and the church, which I think we still benefit from.